Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten and the unforgettable. This is it. This is the end of the year episode of the show. Despite the shit show the year 2020 turned out to be, I'm going to do my best to end it on as high a note as possible. For starters, I have three alternative holiday movie reviews. One is the Northern European cult classic, Rare Exports, followed by reviews for Jack Frost and Jack Frost 2, the killer snowman movies, and not the family dramedy with Michael Keaton. I'll be looking at a few films and video games I got my hands on in 2020, some I have a lot to say about, and not all of it good. Following that, I have my top 10 films for this year, featured on Mac and the Movies, and a new installment of The Three Tenors, where John and I will discuss the tough checks of cinema. Paramount Pictures is offering more digital copies, this one for the Bruce Willis thriller, Breach. I'll have details on that later. Lastly, I will offer a preview of some of the episodes for 2021. Now, let's dive into the movies. We got movies! Gentlemen, listen up. That we are standing on a sacred grave. <sighs> How's the old book? Meinaat. Meillä on täällä pukki myytävä. 
What do you want? $85,000. Mitä helvettiä tää tapahtuu? It's the winter months in the rural, mountainous landscapes of Finland. An excavation is taking place, digging deep into the earth. The head of the excavation gives his crew a pamphlet of rules. The most emphasized one is no swearing. However, something goes wrong and the entire team disappears. In the valley, there are a group of hunters who eye the local reindeer to support themselves financially. Unfortunately, the entire population of reindeer has been slaughtered by what looks like the excavation crew. The hunters investigate only to find no one around to get answers from. All the while, the film plotline is predominantly seen from the perspective of Petari. We see how the, his father and him are spending their first Christmas since the death of their mo- uh, mother and wife. The stern nature of the father, Rono, seems to be his way of hiding or dealing with his grief and the scene. This almost causes a schism between the two until the odd series of events bring them together as father and son. The show's yearly tradition of spotlighting alternative Christmas movie selections continue. Rare exports came out at a time when Northern Europe was in a horror movie heyday similar to Italy in the 70s through the 80s or Japan at the turn of the century. Finland, Norway, Sweden all were putting out one great horror movie after another. Rare Exports belongs right alongside the likes of Let the Right One In, Troll Hunter, and Dead Snow. I must warn parents with kids who are sensitive regarding old Saint Nick, if your kid thinks Santa is a jolly charitable soul, then make sure your kid never sees this movie. This manifestation of Santa is along the lines of Finnish and Germanic folklore, where Santa is closer to being the Krampus. This Santa doesn't reward good children so much as he eats the bad children. Feel free to look up Nacht Ruprecht and the Tom Tin to understand where this film's Santa is coming from. There are moments of inspired genius that incorporate popular trikens associated with Christmas. The way gingerbread cookies are connected with the quote-unquote monsters warrants some laughs. The film walks the tightrope between horror and comedy when the monster is in the presence of a child. Again, this is an R-rated movie, clearly not meant for children. Experiencing the movie's events through the character of Pichardi is an effective means of telling the story. This method worked great with classic cinema like Kella Mockingbird and The City of Lost Children. His relationship with his father gives the movie a lot of heart. Although his friendship with another boy, Juso, uh, played by Ilmari, Jar- I'm, I'm terribly sorry if I'm going to be butchering these names, uh, Ilmari Jarvenpa, isn't really developed, but is set understandably uh, aside for the plot and the aim to strengthen Pietardi and Rolno, uh, respectively played by real-life father and son, or son and father, Ani Tamila and Jorma Tamila. While the film is grim for the most part, it takes a hard left turn and is bizarrely warm. 
it goes from being sardonic towards sentimentality and the marketing of Santa Claus uh, to embrace the popular view of the said character. This plot lane change comes from the mind of Pitari. This execution will have some people leaving the film with a smile on their face. It starts out as a fantastic horror film but changes gears at the last five minutes, all without coming off as disjointed. I would say it does qualify as a twist ending, but not even remotely in the gimmick sense. If this review comes off as vague, I did so out of practicality. This is a tough movie to review without giving away spoilers. If you're still hesitant about this film, I recommend going out on a limb and watching it. It's on a number of streaming services for free with occasional commercials. The movie clocks in at 82 minutes, which is shorter than the average horror movie, and well worth your time. One cold night, science and evil collide. Jack Frost. Frost opens with a bizarre voice acting duo being passed off as a father and daughter. Here, the father gives the background of a serial killer known as Jack Frost. He was able to elude the police and FBI until being caught while making a pit stop. Jack would torment the sheriff during the trial, promising that he'll get him. On the trip to Jack's execution, a transport collides with a truck carrying genetic material substances. Jack escapes, but is exposed to the substances and melts into the snow. Oddly enough, the snow mixes with his blood and they genetically bond. Now Jack is able to get his revenge while under the guise of a snowman. For a decade and a half, I've seen this movie everywhere. From the shelves of Blockbuster Video to the instant selections of Netflix to being featured on Joe Bob's The Last Drive-In. If you grew up in the age of the video store, you remember this film's hologram box art of a typical snowman morphing into a monster. This has Charles Band's showmanship written all over it. For those who saw Christmas Evil or Black Christmas and were bummed by their dark, grim overtones, then this film is right up your alley. Right from the very beginning, this film doesn't take itself seriously. The killer and the killings in this film are clearly played for laughs, which make for a nice change of pace. Uh, this is a film for the reanimator and Evil Dead 2 crowd. The death by snow sled 
was the moment this film won me over. It was so ridiculous and the preposterousness keeps building from there where you have a scene involving a bathtub that must be seen to be believed. On the plus side, gore is minimal, so gore hounds may be disappointed, but fans of So Bad They're Good movies will vouch for this title. Obviously, the most recognizable member of the cast would be Shannon Elizabeth. Compared to films she would work on after this, uh, between American Pie and James Silent Bob Strike Back, I would rate this movie as her best performance. Quote unquote. This was before she ended up playing the same type of character over and over again. There is an earnestness in her performance worth noting. The other cast uh, have their share of notable credits as well. Scott McDonald, who plays the killer, has appeared in films like Jarhead and Water for Elephants, but would be busy as a voice actor for video games like X-Men Legends, Final Fantasy VIII, and L.A. Noire. Christopher Alport has been on TV programs like NCIS, Without a Trace, and Mad Men. Rob LaBelle, who plays a scientist in the film, can be seen in Fido, Watchmen, and Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Stephen Mendel, who plays a squad leader, appeared in The Terminal with Tom Hanks and the Angry Video Game Nerd movie. The film was not received well by critics. Why? Because it was so bad it was entertaining for just being that. I think the point of the film was lost on other critics, for which they border on being pretentious. The filmmakers were out to make a thought-provoking tour de force masterpiece. They went out to make a cheesy, laugh-out-loud horror comedy. This film has proven to be popular among my social circle. Uh, the film was made for people who can enjoy a bad movie. Uh, much like with Troll 2, it is a technically sound, low-budget movie. It's decently shot and audibly clear. It, it was competently made. Anyone looking for a lighter take on Christmas horror will enjoy Jack Frost. It follows the Bruno Mattei-inspired notion that movies are made to be entertaining. This is a movie you gather around with friends and some spiked eggnog. It's Christmas time again in Snowmonton, and they want to get away from it all. It was exactly a year ago that it happened. And that's why we should be somewhere else for Christmas. Another beauteous day in heaven, eh? Welcome to the Tropicana, your last resort before paradise. <laughs> this is a job for Captain Fun! But there's trouble in paradise. Get me the head of island security. Oh, no, not the scary dude. Scary dude's already here. You got 18 bodies to explain, huh? Food poisoning. Mutant killer snowman. Jack's back, and he's still one cold son of a Miss me. Let's get it on. Ooh, now there's something that needs a little Christmas stuffing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that isn't the cutest little thing. Wouldn't mind practicing a little breaststroke myself. Fat lady's warming up. Jack Frost, too. Are you ready to scream? <laughs> From Apex Entertainment. Jack Frost 2 takes place a year after the events of the previous film. 
Sam Tiller is consulting with his therapist, struggling to come to terms with the evil snowman that was a resurrected serial killer. He becomes a laughingstock at the office. He's advised to take a vacation. Coincidentally, Sam's deputy is getting married and is invited to join him for their Pacific getaway. Meanwhile, the FBI has found the burial site for the liquid remains of Jack Frost. They take the remains back to a laboratory for study. One of the lab techs leaves coffee out, which is spilled into Jack's remains, and brings him back to life. Jack follows Sam to the island due to Sam's blood being spilled into the antifreeze that originally killed Jack. Jack has a psychic connection to Sam. It isn't long before Jack terrorizes the island, hunting Sam. Jack Frost 2 fails almost everywhere the previous film succeeded. The first one was shot on film, giving it a professional look. Jack Frost 2 looks like it was shot on cheap video. The cast in the previous film took the material straight. Campy at times, but never winked into the camera. In Jack Frost 2, they are in on the joke. They went from cult Christmas classic a la Santa Slay to essentially making a bad movie on purpose in the vein of Sharknado. And as always, it doesn't work. Uh, John of the Three Tenors said it best. They tried too hard here. Michael Cooney returns as writer and director. I didn't say much of him in the review for Jack Frost because I wanted to spotlight him here. The two Jack Frost films mark his only directorial efforts. He wrote the fantastic, subversive murder mystery film Identity with Ray Liotta and John Cusack. He found a nice career for himself as a playwright, but also a writer of children's literature and young adult fiction. Christopher Alport, Eileen Seeley, Chip Heller, Marsha Clark, and Scott McDonald all returned to reprise their roles from the previous film. David Allen Brooks took over for Stephen Mendel for the role of Agent Manners. Ian Abercrombie of Seinfeld and Army of Darkness plays the role of the therapist in the beginning. Guillermo del Toro's favorite actor, Doug Jones, has a small role as a man stranded out in the ocean. I can't bring myself to recommend Jack Frost 2. It is such a downgrade from the previous film, and trying to come off as being bad on purpose seals the fate of the sequel. I'm surprised to say the first film was one of the best alternative Christmas movies ever made, which makes the fall of the sequel so much more painful. Next, we're going to move into uh, the films of 2020 that I was able to catch. Uh, first, uh, we're going to go ahead and start off with the ones that I recommend. First, I recommend The Invisible Man, uh, a clever update on the classic Universal monster. Instead of an invisibility formula driving a man insane, you have a man already insane with an invisibility suit. Elizabeth Moss sells the emotional sensitivity of the abusive survivor. Lee Wanell of Saw and Upgrade shows how frightening technology can be in the wrong hands. Sonic the Hedgehog, 
Much like Detective Pikachu, this is another surprise hit that is slowly turning the tide of bad movie adaptations of video games. Although we now have Paul W.S. Anderson ruining another Capcom franchise with Monster Hunter. Ben Schwartz gives Sonic a true personality. Credit to Tim Miller and Blur Studios for fixing the character design after the backlash and admitting the fans were right. VFW. Character actors in a John Carpenter-esque siege movie? What more can you ask for? Stephen Lang, Fred the Hammer Williamson, William Sadler, George Wendt, Martin Cove, all are entertaining as hell and one of the most enjoyable neo-grindhouse films I've seen in a long time. Bad Boys for Life. Here's a shocker. This is the first Bad Boys movie I've ever seen, and I thoroughly liked it. Smith and Lawrence have a great chemistry and comedy timing. Joey Pants never fails to delight. Great action sequences that kept me in suspense. And lastly, The Gentleman. Guy Ritchie doing what he does best. East End Cockney Crime Comedies. This is a return to his roots of lock, stock, and two smoking barrels and snatch. He keeps you on your toes with various twists and backstabbings to prevent the audience from guessing where things are going to go from there. For the list of movies I don't recommend, which actually surprisingly is the shorter of the two, so the the, the pain will will not last too long. All right, starting off, Birds of Prey. Harley Quinn can't carry her own movie, which shows not only in her using the supporting characters as a crutch, but in WB's decision to change the title after the first weekend of the release. It seems whenever Harley is not being handled by either Paul Dini or Bruce Timm, she's unlikable. Compare how she is presented in this film to when she's voiced by either Arlene Sorkin or Tara Strong. There's a charming magnetism for her that is absent in this film. Bill and Ted's Face the Music. A comedy where the only time I laughed was when either William Sadler or Hal Landon Jr. were on screen. The movie looks cheap and the laughs were just not that strong. I love the original Bill and Ted. I need to revisit Bogus Journey, but Face the Music was nostalgia bait and I just didn't bite. Lastly, The Mortuary Collection, an anthology film that pales in comparison to the likes of the masterpieces by Amicus Productions. Credit to Clancy Brown for channeling the late Angus Scrim in his performance. The plot twists were predictable if you've seen enough episodes of The Twilight Zone or Tales from the Crypt. The movie is not as clever as the filmmakers would make themselves believe.
for my favorite video games of 2020. 60 Seconds, a post-apocalyptic simulator where you have to quickly gather supplies and your family members for a long-term stay in your bunker. Each day, you have to decide if you're staying in your shelter or if you're going out to explore. Your experience with the game depends on what supplies you have and who you rescued. There is a dark sense of humor, but a lot of replay value. Kentucky Route Zero, the TV edition. Uh, I know Kentucky Route Zero has been out for a while on other platforms, but it finally landed on the PSN this year, so it's new to me. A scary game that was perfect for Halloween. It's an episodic adventure game with a menacing aesthetic. I love it when other developers take the basic skeleton of a Telltale game, then give it their own spin and style, much like Blues and Bullets. Deadly Premonition 2. Still quirky, still very Twin Peaks. FBI agent Francis York Morgan is as is amusing as ever. The Louisiana setting stands out and has its own character, uh, kind of similar to how Greenvale had its own character. Anime Studio Story. Uh, this is another one that's been out for a while on other platforms, but it finally came to the PSN this year. A fun little indie game where you run an anime studio. You create films, create new characters to be featured in your films. You can take side gigs like Bollywood movies and cutscenes for video games. You can hire staff and promote them. You have to make sure you hire specialists in drawing, writing, sound, and have good taste to produce award-winning productions. And lastly, Wasteland 3. This is what Fallout should be. Fully customized characters, dark humor, creepy atmosphere, and a sense that your decisions carry real weight and have consequences. Elements missing from the Bethesda Fallout games. Wasteland 3 does for classic Fallout what Outer Worlds did for Fallout New Vegas. the video games that I don't recommend, buckle up because this is going to be a rough ride. Starting off with Resident Evil 3, this was glorified DLC. This should not have been a full price release. When there was more content in the original PlayStation 1 game compared to the PS4 remake, you've got a huge problem. Nemesis is very weak and scripted compared to Mr. Rex from the Resident Evil 2 remake. This game convinced me to never spend another penny on any Resident Evil games from here on out, and I have no interest in Resident Evil Village. And then we have Resident Evil Resistance. When people wanted an online Resident Evil multiplayer experience, we wanted a remaster of the Outbreak games. What did Capcom give us? a rehash of Dead by Daylight and Friday the 13th, the game. Only the balancing between the survivors and the mastermind stopping them is way off. 
No one would even bother with this game if it weren't for the desperation to squeeze more value out of an already disappointing remake. Predator Hunting Grounds. Ilphonic dropped the ball with Predator Hunting Grounds. The Predator was a nightmare to handle. The fire team squad felt like you were controlling the human equivalent of a paper tiger. Squads could be wiped out in mere seconds by the Predator. The 4v1 approach left much to be desired, considering the film's fire team consisted of seven members, and even Friday the 13th had eight survivors to one Jason. Music Racer. A headache-inducing game experience as I've ever dealt with. Imagine a primitive, musically bland version of 2016's Amplitude. None of the music stood out. The music tracks are difficult to navigate and earn points when the peaks obscure the notes on the tracks. Some cars are based on pop culture, but it'll be a slug since you know I, I could only play the game for five minutes at a time before I needed to turn it off. Music Racer was atrocious. I, I need to take a drink because I'm about to talk about The Last of Us Part 2. Okay. I have got a lot to say about this game, and considering I consciously decided not to play it, here are my reasons. Number one, Neil Druckmann should be punished for his blatant denial and dodging the fact that he made poor narrative choices and created unlikable characters like Abby. Leanna Kersner perfectly articulated everything wrong with Abby. I'll link to her videos in the description. The deceptive marketing made it seem like Joel was in the game for longer than he actually was. This is on the same level of deception as Aliens Colonial Marines by Gearbox. Number three. When the leaks came out about Last of Us Part Two, Druckmann, Nutty Dog, and Sony engaged in unforgivable censorious practices like abusing YouTube's copyright claim system. Whenever someone covered the story of the leaks, they were hit with copyright claims, which affected their financial sustainability and the status of their channel. Number four. The limitations slapped on reviewers by Naughty Dog interfere with the reviewer's obligation to give the consumer as much information as possible about the game. Naughty Dog told reviewers that there were sections of the game that could not be discussed, which is alarming not so much as those limitations being enforced, but by the acceptance of those limitations by the reviewers. These reviewers condone the misinformation and deceptive practices by Naughty Dog, and it shows in the sales of the game and the rapidly declining trust in gaming journalism. Giving money to this game was giving permission for Naughty Dog to continue to engage in these underhanded methods. I had a huge smile on my face when I saw the week-to-week sales for The Last of Us Part Two plummet by 80%. We're talking about a percentage that outdid the week-to-week drop by Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. I even had a bigger smile on my face when Druckmann had to beg people to vote for The Last of Us Part Two for the Player's Voice Award for the Game Awards 2020, only for Ghosts of Tsushima to win instead. Suck it, Druckmann. All right, moving on. Marvel's Avengers. Another game I didn't need to give money to know it was bad. The beta was enough to convince me not to buy it. The focus on loot, repetitive combat, and QTE in the Taskmaster boss fight. They weakened the Hulk and Thor, two of the most powerful characters in Marvel, yet they feel nerfed as hell. I saw the tutorial uh, with how to do a power move as the Hulk. Shouldn't every move by the Hulk be a power move? 
Uh, what's next? Oh, yeah. Fall Guys, a free-to-play game that got old after 10 minutes. And then you had Hyperspace and Overwatch Fortnite Wannabe, Rocket Arena, see Hyperspace. And lastly, WWE 2K Battlegrounds. After subpar wrestling simulators for the past years, WWE 2K Battlegrounds offers an arcade approach that aims for all-stars but falls way short. At launch, only a handful of the dozens of characters were available to play. Gradually, more characters were added, many that had to be purchased with in-game currency or currency you can buy with real money. If you want to make the SmackDown ring, you have to pay currency for it. The creative character is beyond basic. The Battleground Challenge mode still crashes when I try to select certain matches. The online modes lack any balance due to different internet speeds. The campaign mode is a joke because you're stuck playing developer-created characters instead of your own character or newer members of the real-life roster. Still buggy in places like being eliminated from a Royal Rumble with a head scissors when that isn't a move that throws people over the top rope. I can only hope the AEW game, Retromania Wrestling, or the Wrestling Code from Virtual Basement deliver a satisfying wrestling game experience. Some folks say that Willie Green was the baddest motherfucker the world ever seen. But I want you to hold on to your seats. Hold on to them tight. Cause you now get ready to see the story of me. Yes, me. A badass. Top 10 films that were featured on the Mega the Movies podcast for 2020. Number 10, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, a meta exercise by Wes Craven that would lay the foundation for Scream. Robert England as a re-horrified Freddy Krueger reminds audiences how scary this character can be after multiple films making him a gallows humor pop culture icon. Number 9, Mortal Kombat. Still one of the best video game-based movies ever made. Respectful of the source material, surprising considering this was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, Robin Chow, Linda Nashby, Bridget Wilson, Christopher Lambert, and Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa all bring in energy to the film. Number 8, Dolmite. Crude comedian and toaster Ray Rudy Moore becomes one of cinema's most unlikely anti-heroes as Dolmite. Offensively funny, but looks more professional than expected thanks to the direction of Irville Martin and cinematographer Nicholas Joseph von Sternberg. Number seven, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka. Quite possibly one of the greatest parody movies of all time for the man who would gift us with the sketch comedy TV classic In Living Color. Keenan Ivory Wayans pays homage to the exploitation films of the 70s, featuring the likes of Bernie Casey, Isaac Hayes, Jim Brown, Clarence Williams III, John Witherspoon, and many more. Number six, My Breakfast with Blassie. A movie that consists mostly of intergender wrestling champion Andy Kaufman conversing with wrestling legend Classy Freddie Blassie. A time capsule film of sorts showing a time when wrestling heels had to be bad both in public and in the ring. It's an interesting movie to watch 
soured only by the gross-out gags of Kaufman's partner in comedic crime, Bob Zamuda. Number five, The Rocketeer, a wonderful Art Deco superhero movie that predates the comic book craze of the late 2000s. Bill Campbell has the small-town farm boy charm. Jennifer Connelly in film noir wardrobe is a stunning sight. Timothy Dalton is also excellent as a Nazi sympathizer. Tiny Ron Taylor is frightening as the Rondo Hatton-inspired Luthor. Number four, Zombie, directed by Lucio Fulci and distributed in America by Jerry Gross. You have the zombie movie that opened the Italian gore floodgates. Taking the creature to its roots, Fulci and company provide a slow-paced but splatterific horror movie set in the beautiful Caribbean. Number three, Bubba Hotep. Bruce Campbell gives one of the best performances of his career as an aging Elvis Presley, battling a soul-sucking mummy in an East Texas rest home. Joining Campbell is a solid cast of character actors headed up by the credible Ossie Davis. Number two, Dario Argento's Deep Red. David Hemmings is a pianist who witnesses a murder in this iconic giallo directed by Argento. Hemmings has a screwball chemistry with the late Daria Nicolodi, a great score by the debuting Goblin, and one of the best deaths of a killer in film. Number one, Dawn of the Dead. Not just one of the greatest zombie movies ever made, but one of the greatest horror movies ever made. George A. Romero builds on the world introduced in Night of the Living Dead with a new group of characters, better-looking zombies, tongue-in-cheek social commentary, and a nice soundscape pairing Goblin with DeWolf Library tracks. And those were my personal favorite movies from the 2020 episodes of Making the Movies. Uh, feel free to let me know which ones were your favorites that I covered this year. And on a, a note for this year, I have decided to remove the Making the Movies Hall of Fame. Before this year, the criteria I had placed uh, made it easy to hold it uh, based on the listenership. However, the show grew astronomically in 2020 with multiple episodes reaching triple digits. For that, I am absolutely thankful. So many films and actors qualifying that would make inductions not mean as much. Scrapping the Hall of Fame was the only choice I can make. All right, and now we will move into a new installment of The Three Tenors uh, featuring selections by myself, John Cleveland, and Rob Hill. We will be discussing the subject of tough chicks. Enjoy.
Hey everybody, Mackenzie Lambert here, host for Making the Movies. Uh, this is another installment of The Three Tenors. Joining me is our good friend, John Cleveland. Hi everybody. Uh, this list today is going to be uh, the, the female empowerment episode, because we're going to be discussing the toughest chicks in cinema. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at uh, Rob Hill's introduction for this. This is not a list of female characters who can deal with adversity or have the tenacity to achieve the impossible, hence no Ripley from Alien, etc., this is a list of female characters who are born to kick at, uh, kick serious ass, and in some cases do nothing but. Okay. Uh, I don't quite understand how you don't think that Ripley's that, but let's yeah, move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, number ten. The Bride from Kill Bill. Yep. Yep. No, no, no argument there. No argument here. All right, here's here's one that's uh, so totally 80s. China O'Brien, played by Cynthia Rothrock. In China O'Brien. I see some parallels between me and our list here. Because <laughs> I totally didn't think he was going to call that out. No, that, that's, that's, that was that's a, deep cut right that there. That was a deep cut. To be honest with you, I totally thought that was going to be my, ha-ha, you guys forgot this. All right. Uh, number eight, Red Sonia, played by Bridget Nielsen in Red Sonia. Strongly disagree. <laughs> Strongly disagree. <laughs> Uh, okay, okay, let's do that. Okay, well, why would you go ahead and uh, disagree with that? <laughs> We're not going to talk about that it's a shitty movie. I'm not going to bring that up. All right. I'm also not going to bring up that her character development is she, a, a female warlord wants to have her as a concubine. She says no, so they kill her village, and then the entire female warlord's, like, male entourage, you know, does the thing that I'm not going to say that you know what happens. Mm-hmm. Okay, then she's just mystically given all her fighting ability by a spirit who's not in the film for the rest of the time. She's literally just going, oh, you had a trap, something bad happened to you. Here's all the effort you ever need to retain yourself. So she has no impetus on revenge. She was handed the gift of revenge. And then she just proceeds to go, and yeah, she does, she does kick butt in the movie, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But like, it's just handed to her. She doesn't earn it. It's so disingenuous to the female empowerment uh, story. She's just given it. It's just it's it's not earned. It, yeah, that and that seems to be the problem with a lot of female characters is that they're just given their powers instead of you know working for a real character. Yeah, 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 and that's why I I strongly disagree with that. Like I jokingly strongly disagree because it's a, not a great movie. Mm -hmm. And trust me, I love me some bad movies, but it just doesn't really work. It's that she's not given it. He wants to say no Ellen Ripley because she was forced into a horrible situation and just strives in it. Mm -hmm. How How is that not the same thing? I disagree. If you want to talk about a powerful woman in the Conan universe, because yeah. Red Sonja's in the Conan universe, yeah, I can think of a bunch more. So Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, number seven, Natiri, uh, played by Zoe Saldana in Avatar. Okay, I I wouldn't have done that, but okay, I see yeah, it. I yeah. can see it. Yeah, and honestly, uh, so yeah, I might have actually would have rather have gone with maybe um, Gamora from Guardians of the Galaxy more so than Atiri, but that's that's just me. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's true. I mean, like I get it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just a transferring the actress part, but in that yeah. one, but like she's done. I mean, she's done a lot of really intense uh, characters in, in her. In her, I remember her career. being in The Losers back in oh. 2010. She was awesome in I've that. Been, I've been looking for a reason to bring up The Losers. <laughs> I love that movie. The Losers is what The Expendables wishes it was. Mm -hmm. It's so good. And for anyone listening to this, if you've never seen it, watch it. Here, I'll sell it to you. 
it's got um uh, Chris Evans is in it. Yeah, uh, Chris Evans is in Jeffrey it. Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Jeffrey Dean Morgan is in it. And Idris Elba is in it. Watch this movie. It is if you like the Expendables, it is better than the Expendables because it's better at it's better acted. Uh, the plot's a little more absurd. I'm not gonna lie, but like it's it's just a better film. Yeah. Uh, number six, Sarah Connor. Absolutely, no argument it's, there. The yeah. only argument is yeah. why is it so high on the list and not closer to one or two? That's yeah. the only argument I have. Yep. Uh, number five, Maggie Fitzgerald uh, from Million Dollar Baby, played by Hilary Swank. One of my honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just gr- amazing movie. Brings a tear to my eye every time I watch it. Like legit, it's a great film. And yeah, no, she's a, she's tough as nails in that. Oh yeah. Uh, number four, Mayday, played by Grace Jones, uh, a Bond villainess. Uh, okay. From View to a Kill. Yeah, I mean Grace Jones. I I kind of called her out inadvertent, mm-hmm. like sideways on the on the Conan call out uh, uh, just a couple seconds ago. Yep. But yeah, no, absolutely. She's one of the best female antagonists in the Bond series, and mm-hmm. she's a physical threat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she sort of paved the way for the likes of Zinnia on the top for uh, Goldeneye. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. good call, good call. All right, I'm probably going to totally mispronounce this, but Zhao Mei uh, from House of Flying Daggers, played by Ziyi Zhang. Yeah, uh, it was difficult for me not to include an actress from that, Mm -hmm. um, or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but um, yeah, no, absolutely solid, solid choice. Number two, Celine, played by Kate Beckinsale from the Underworld series. Fair. It didn't make my list. Uh, it didn't actually even make my honorable mentions, just because there was something that pushed it out. I, honestly, if you're going to have Celine, you may as well put in Trinity from the Matrix, because that's exactly who she's kind of aping herself from. I don't disagree, but I think she has... I think she's more of a kick-ass, tough-as-nails mm-hmm. heroine than Trinity, in my opinion. Because I feel like Trinity, unfortunately, gets boiled down to her relationship with Neo too much. Yep. Um, than being a thing, but I, she's she's a kick-ass. She would be if Trinity was on this list, I wouldn't argue with that point. Yeah. I just think that like I actually think Celine's more of a uh, kick-ass heroine. So uh, okay, number one, Alice, played by Mila Jovovich for the Resident Evil films. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm having that same I'm having that same reaction. Just no, nah. She there are already tough women in Resident Evil. You had Jill Valentine, Claire Redfield. You had these characters, and yet you have Alice who takes away those moments from those characters in the movies. I love the Resident Evil series, and I know it's trash. Like, the, like the, I love the games, don't get me wrong, and I, I will defend the games, but the storyline is trash. I, I'm not going to defend that. <laughs> when they said they were making a movie, I got excited. When I watched it, I'm like, okay, I, I get the liberties it had to take, because you know, yeah. video game movies take liberties. I'm fine with that. I didn't actually think the first one was all that bad. As that series went on, and again, I love horrible movies, it became difficult to watch. Not because of just my love of Resident Evil. It's just that, yeah, you nailed it. You took the impetus away from other good heroines, and then you just muddled it. Like, it's just, she, in several films, because that's what we're talking about, her character in film... She goes from having she she goes to she becomes this it's the Superman paradox. She has so many powers. How is there? Why are there problems yeah. in the world if she can just solve them? She literally has superpowers in a couple of the movies. Oh, so then they take the powers away. Oh, but turns out they weren't ever really away. It was just a, it, it, I don't like those movies Mm-mm. at all. The first ones I actually think the first one's good. Yeah, for yeah. what it was. The rest are horrible. I do not suggest them. Unless you like watching movies to make fun of them, then there is some joy to be had. 
And it's heartbreaking considering the, I remember reading the Resident Evil novels by S.D. Perry, and it's like, these are what the movie should have been. Absolutely. And I just think, I think that I strongly disagree. I, I don't even agree with her in an honorable mention because she takes that power away from the other characters who could have been present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to, for him to label it number one, that's nah. that, that's absurd. Yeah. I. <laughs> he first he started by say, taking Ellen Ripley away, and I'm like, okay, I don't know why, but he mm -hmm. sacrifices something for everyone. Okay, yep. but then to have her, I I just disagree. Yeah, that's uh, no, that's nah. no, that's a bad taste. In my yeah, yeah. All right, we need the palate cleanser, uh, John. Okay. Go ahead and hit us with your list. All right, all right. <laughs> so um, my my honorable mention. I mentioned a couple, so I'm not going to reiterate them per se. But my first honorable mention. Uh, is Zoe uh, Washburn played by Gina Torres in Serenity, the TV, the the movie version of the TV show Firefly, the arguably the last episode. Mm -hmm. um, she's a tough as nails. If you know the if you know the series, she you know at several points during the series, a character whose entire point of being strong and tough as nails, she'll just put him in his place by going, "I can end you." Yeah, like she she takes no. <laughs> Let's be honest, she takes no shit from men. She takes mm -hmm. no shit from anyone. She's great. Um, I, I mentioned a whole bunch of others, so we'll just we'll move on from that. My number 10, though, uh, and one that I don't quite understand, it seems like right up Mr. Hill's line, so I really don't know why I wouldn't call it out, is Elizabeth Slander, played by Naomi... Uh, I always mispronounce her name. Mm -hmm. I apologize. Naomi uh, Rep... Pace. Yeah, yeah, Naomi. Yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, and Rooney uh, Mara. Two different actresses played the same character. Oh, the girl with the in the girl with the drag tattoo right. series. Um, I really struggled to pick which one I liked better, and I'm a big fan of the series. I mm -hmm. haven't read the books, um, but I am a big fan of the the movie series, and I really think they each brought a different level of tough as nails, badass, you know, female empowerment, kick ass fucking energy to the role. So mm -hmm. you know, I'm choosing both of them. Yep. It's a tie. Because it's in character, but different actors. So I thought yeah. that was fine. Number nine. Uh, so because I already said the channel O'Brien was on the list somewhere, this will be my obscure call out. <laughs> Foxy Brown, played by Pram, Pam Greer mm. for Foxy Brown. Yeah, we black exploitation just oh, it's, it's just the queen women. of yeah. black exploitation. Yep, um, just amazing actress. I want, there's so many other movies I could have picked, but when it came down to brass tacks, that was going to be the mm -hmm. one. That's her. That's her movie. Yeah. You know if that makes sense. Oh yeah. So, and if you're not a, if you're not familiar with Pam Greer's work, be familiar yes. with Pam Greer's mm -hmm. work. All right, number eight, Lilu. Mm. I'd like to point out she's often called Lilu Dallas because of the scene with the multi pass. It's not her actual name. <laughs> she doesn't marry the guy, so her name is just Lilu. Uh, and talk about the fact that we just crapped on Alice, played by Mila Jovovich in Resident Evil. Here she is doing it's done right. Here. Yeah, this is she is the art. Like when you imagine sci-fi tropes, mm -hmm. one of the major sci-fi tropes is an unstoppable killing machine woman. Lilo Davos is an unstoppable killing machine yep. woman. And she's like it, it, she's embodying that. Her scene with the space opera playing in the background. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Of course, I don't. We haven't technically said from the Fifth Element. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no. That if if his list would have been all that, and at the end said Lilu, I would have been fine. I wouldn't have argued. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had to be upset. Yep. But to even take like, how do you not? How do you pick Mila Jovovich's <laughs> character and then just go and not this one, but this it's, one? Yeah. It's just oh, mm -hmm. it's painful. All right, number seven. 
as mentioned, I had to bring her up. I uh, thought this was going to be my, hey oh, you guys, this one. <laughs> I was wrong. China O'Brien, played by Cynthia Rock Rock in the China mm-hmm. O'Brien. The, I would say series, because there's more than one. Uh, again, I could have picked other ones. Um, she, Cynthia Rock Rock, does a lot of really good work. Uh, fun fact, her first starring role was starring opposite Michelle Wan uh, in Yes, Madam. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, Michelle Wan will be appearing later in the list. All right. um, but yeah, no, amazing. If you watched an 80s film, in uh, an action film in the 80s starring a woman, it was Cynthia Rock Rock. Yeah, you don't hear her talked about enough. No, she is. She's on. In my opinion, she should be on the Mount Rushmore of action heroes mm-hmm. of the eighties. Yep. Um, but she isn't, and that's not fair because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe Mount Rushmore is a little. That's she, a little. She's much. Hall of Fame. Let's she's Hall of Fame. Fame. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I just realized Mount Rushmore is kind of who are the four best. I'm like, ah, sorry, I guess not. Yeah. But she's up there. Mm-hmm. All right, number six. Well, spoiler alert, it's uh, Lucy Lei, played by Michelle Wan, uh, from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh. or Please Story, and I struggled to pick which one. <laughs> and I, I I, did Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but I really wanted to choose Please Story. For those who don't know, in Please Story, she plays opposite Jackie Chan, and at several points when interviewed, Jackie Chan said that he had to do crazy stunts in that movie. For example, the infamous, now infamous... Helicopter dangling on the rope of, uh, or dangling on the ladder off of a helicopter, chasing a train scene. The ridiculous stunt that that was. <laughs> Why did he have to do that? Dude? Because he was being outshined both his acting and martial arts ability on screen by Michelle Wan. Because she is so much better of a martial artist than he is. He said that. Well, She's, he he does his martial arts more for comedy, yes. so that's the yeah. Yeah, but no, back in the day, oh, you didn't mess with her. And again, if you're a huge fan of, of action films and you love you know, female empowerment, watch Yes, Madam, because Cynthia Rock Rock and Shawan beat the crap out of everyone in that movie. <laughs> Number five, halfway through. Samantha Kane, a.k.a. Charlie, played by Gina Davis in A Long Kiss Goodnight. All right. Yep. Big fan of the movie. I was a fan of it. It's a lesser-known action film from the... 90s. I was a big fan of it when I was a kid, and it's just one I love showing people that don't know. And because uh, we're located, uh, you know, near the falls in Buffalo, New York, it's really great call out because part of it's filmed on the Rainbow Bridge, yeah. right near us. So it's really, really cool. Also, for those who love it, it's a Sam Jackson movie. Early in his career, he hasn't quite nailed every Sam Jackson, but he is full Sam Jackson yep. in this movie. Yep. So it's also got really funny little elements of uh, <laughs> Rip Torn's character is hilarious. Okay. Number four, and the newest the entry on the list, okay. Impero Furiosa, played by uh, Charlize uh, yeah. Theron yep. in Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. I love such an amazing movie, one of the best action films of that decade, or mm-hmm. so far. I would say the best action film I've seen, I, I, I dare say, since The Matrix. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's so good. There are, every time... I try to nitpick it because it's a five out of five for me. Mm. But every time I try to come up with a nitpick or I hear a nitpick, I can counter that nitpick with a valid statement. <laughs> like, I, it's not a perfect film. I'm not trying to say that, but I have a hard time not. I have a hard time coming up with a flaw. All right. Uh, number three, top three, V3. Right. Number three is The Bride. 
Beatrix Kiddo, mm. played by Uma yeah. Thurman and Kill Bill 1 and 2. Now, my favorite fact of how awesome she is as a character and how badass she is, of all the characters that are on my entire list, she's the only one who influenced pop culture to the point where she has an actual parasitic wasp named after her. <laughs> a scientist thought she was so awesome that when he discovered this parasitic wasp, he named it after her character. There is a wasp whose name is like Beatrix um, uh, Beatrix something or other, yeah. some Latin term or something. So think about that. That's how badass she is. <laughs> if you if you know me, if you pay attention, they're saying you should know who number one and number two are. <laughs> you should just be wondering which order. Which order? Yep. Because they could be in either order. It's a preference thing. The only. I like one movie more than I like the other <clears throat> is the only reason they're in the order they're in. I could not... I have no way of telling you which one's more. So I'm just going to say them in the order I wrote them. Feel free to assume it's the other order if that's the way you want. It's Sarah Connor from... Played by Linda Hamilton, Hamilton in Terminator 2 Judgment Day yep. because she's amazing in mm-hmm. it. I actually... Uh, I met her at a con. We talked. in the Apparently in the original uh, script of the movie... Um, James Cameron wanted her to have shaved her head bald because he assumed that that's what what would have happened to her in the asylum. Mm-hmm. And she was like, "No, I'm not shaving it." And they it was kind of like a point of contention. Mm-hmm. And basically, it got down to a, apparently a pretty intense interview they had with each other, where he was like, "No, I want you to do this, and you're just not doing it because you're a woman and you don't want to shave your head." She goes, "No." I'm not doing it. And I'm not saying he said that exactly. That was kind of a paraphrase. Yeah. And it might not have been him. It might have been producers and stuff. But she's like, no, I'm not doing it because my character is a woman. My character isn't, let's shave my head. Oh, now I could be a man. I'm a template. No, I am a woman first. I'm a mother. And that's the core of my character. Yeah. I'm defending my son. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. And number two, uh, that was number two. Mm-hmm. And number one. Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, Ripley yep. played by Sigourney Weaver, in the entire Aliens franchise. Yeah. I love them all for different reasons, mm-hmm. but if I have to pick one where she's the most badass, it's the second one. Yep. Yeah. Get away from her, you bitch. Yep. She fights. I mean, we already know she knows how to deal with a alien, but then she's put in a situation she has to deal with a lot of other ones. And she shows up the best of the best Marines that exist yep. in that universe. And that scene with the face hugger in the room is just like oh, yeah. a perfect illustration of like her maternal instincts kicking in. Absolutely. And then, like again, when attacked by a creature that she's already knows can kill hundreds of people, and then somebody took that creature and made it the size of a house. Mm-hmm. When confronted with that creature, she doesn't just back down. Knowing she she's... aims at her children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She gets in a mech suit and goes, "Nope, I'm beating you." <laughs> It's so amazing. It's so great. She's, it's, for Hill to just ignore her is just mm-hmm. in my, obtuse is the only word I can think of yeah. that isn't directly derogatory towards the man. Mm-hmm. So I'll just say that. But like, and again, I, you, we can argue to her blue in the face and I would side with you half, 50% of the time that Sarah Khan is a better character. Yeah. So I, I'm fine either way, but that's just the most badass, the most tough, yeah. the most m- powerful women in in cinema mm-hmm. in my opinion yeah oh yeah absolutely right, good calls good calls 
Alright, for my time, let's go with my honorable mentions first. I had Marie, played by Anne Peralt in Innocent Blood, uh, the okay. anti-hero vampire. Yep, okay, I can I can see that. Alright. Uh, my other honorable mention, uh, Scarlet Witch, played by Elizabeth Olsen for the MCU, just because of the video we just got done watching for <laughs> Nando versus Movies. It's like, yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. If there was any female character that went through the most adversity, experienced the most growth, I would say that, yeah, it's, it's Scarlet Witch. Yeah, I... <laughs> superhero movies are popcorn entertainment for me they mm -hmm. there's not they try to be deep and they just fail yeah. utterly the ones that succeed are the ones that other aren't in the dc or marvel universe or and i i i be the first to admit this i'm more of a dc fanboy than i am a marvel from mm -hmm. a comic book standpoint but i'm not going to argue that marvel makes better films mm -hmm. but they make better popcorn entertainment i'm excited when i watch a marvel film i yeah. care when i watch a dc film not all of them some of them are crap i'm not going to argue that point yeah. But, yeah, like, for me, I probably wouldn't have put her on there because I can just think of more interesting, developed characters. But I don't disagree that she's gone through a lot and that, you know, she's strong and a survivor. 100%. I get it. So, yeah, yeah she's my honorable mention. Sure. Because I've, I've got some pretty tougher ones coming up. <laughs> uh, number 10. Hit Girl, played by Chloe Grace Moritz in Kick-Ass. Fair. Yeah. Fair. She's uh, that, that scene where they... Uh, the butterfly knife is yeah. it's, it's great, or the scene where she just keeps talking about how she wants this thing, and then they buy it, and then when you find out what that thing is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number nine, Lilo, played by Milo Jovovich in The Fifth Element. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lilo Dallas Montepas. Yeah. <laughs> I need to take some photos for the archives. <laughs> Dot. Uh, <laughs> all right, number eight, Laura Croft, played by Angelina Jolie in Tomb Raider. That's a good call. I kind of regret not having her as my... Uh, one of my honorable mentions, she's a pretty strong, I, I do have to admit that it's arguably perfect casting. Oh yeah, yep. So, yeah. And a video game movie that's actually not as bad as you would expect from the genre. Yeah, I feel like video game movies come in, come in horrible, mm -hmm. eh, okay, or yeah. the one or two you're like, this is actually pretty good. Yep. And that's definitely one of the, eh, it's okay, leaning towards, mm -hmm. it's pretty good. Alright. Yeah. Uh, seven. X-23, played by Daphne Keene in Logan. Okay, yeah. I get that. Mm. I totally see that. Right. I truly hope that she does get more films as that character. Yes. But I, unfortunately, because of Disney's, Disney's vacuum cleaner-like... Uh, very petty attitude towards yeah. stuff they don't make. Yeah. yeah it's a very Vince McMahon attitude. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I kind of feel like we're not going to get that, nah, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, no. I can see it. Number six, Coffee, played by Pam Greer for Coffee. Yep, yep. it was one of the chops <laughs> options I had. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, she puts a double-barrel shotgun point-blank into a guy's face. She shoots uh, her cheating boyfriend in the junk. Yep. So, yep. Ain't no cheating no more. <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> Number five, The Bride, played by Uma Thurman in Kill Bill. It's been all yep. on the list. Yep. Yep. Okay, here's one. Number four, Aaron, played by Sharni Vincent for Your Next. She's okay. the survivor chick who, as soon as all the bad shit goes down, she's like survivalist mode because okay. that's the environment she was raised in. I get it. I can I can see that. All right, here's a here's going to be a uh, uh, surprise because it's this quote unquote low on the list. Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, specifically in Aliens, because yeah. that's when, that's when she's, she's at the yeah. height of her power. Yep. Yeah. I. As long as she's on the list, you just mm -hmm. got to make the kind of you got to you got to admit it's there. Oh yeah, I'm not gonna like. I think she should be one number one or number two, but that's an opinion. I, I get it. As long as she's on the list, yep. I'm happy. Uh, number two, here's one that you know 
just when this movie first came out, I dismissed it. But then when I saw it, it's like, oh my god, she's like right at the top of my list, or almost at the top of my list. Rita, played by Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow. You know that movie just keeps getting better. The mm-hmm. more, the more I, I don't want to say the more I watch it because I've, I've only seen it like twice. Mm-hmm. But like the, I find myself calling out that movie for both its idea, yeah. and Emily Blunt's portrayal. Like I, I went into that being like, I Cruz is one of those who often could put in an amazing performance, but sometimes he gets that crazy and it yeah. doesn't work. Yep. So I was like, okay, well, this could, you know, there's potentiality for good, and I know Emily Blunt's good, but I think she's miscast because I don't really see her as a tough as nails kind of badass. Like I'm like, <laughs> she's a good actress, yes. but yep. that doesn't mean she'll be like. I don't want to see Anthony Hopkins in a movie about an old boxer. You know what I mean? It doesn't. <laughs> it's not gonna. Maybe this isn't gonna work. I watched it and I left it. There's like, nope. I agree yep. that she's a badass woman. Like, there's no. And it, that's perfect example of an actress transcending what you think she should and be good she at. she is cut in that movie. Oh, yeah. She's got 0% body fat. Ridiculous. You'd also kind of put her performance also in uh, uh, A Quiet Place, also in that same kind of... Cause. Yeah, because I feel like that's something we haven't done. Uh, we haven't made a commentary on you do not have to be in an action or mm-hmm. horror film to be tough. Yeah. I do say that I'm not, I skewed, and it seems that you did as well, and even uh, Mr. Hill did as well. We skewed, she's a tough woman because she's in a bad relationship and she's forced to, like, the, mm-hmm. the, I feel like that's some degree of condescension that, like, the reason I don't like the Lifetime original movies is it's always the same story. Lifetime of and Hallmark. Yeah, uh. it's, it's a woman getting beaten by her husband or lover in a bad situation, and she endures. That's not really... The same thing. Now, that's a harrowing story. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I feel like those movies tend to placate it out where it's just, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. Eventually, I survive. Yeah. Where fighting against it is the more heroic deed. Now, it's not realistic, and I, I fully acknowledge that. But that's really what these tough-as-nails chick, I think, embody mm-hmm. is the, I'm going to dominate my my oppressor. I'm not going to sur- just survive them per se, and I have think that all of us have have skewed that, and I think that this is a perfect example of her as an actor. She was able to transcend that, where she's like, "No, I am going to be the dominant factor." Mm-hmm. I would also like to point out, none of us have had a villain, yeah, as uh, as our tough as nails chick. That's pretty interesting, yeah. Either way, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, yeah. Let's get on. And of course, my number one, Sarah Connor, played by Linda, Ham- Linda Hamilton for Terminator Two. Absolutely no yep. argument. We've, we've talked about it. It has to be on your list. Mm-hmm. Like even Hill had to give that yeah. one up. Yeah. Uh, probably if he doesn't, he'll probably wake up to uh, Linda <laughs> Hamilton at his door with a shotgun. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, those those were our list for our top ten tough chicks. Uh, feel free to definitely uh, share yours in the comments section below because you know what we. we Ten is you can only cover so much. It's not just that, like I fully admit, like I'm a guy. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like when I at least I'm a little more quote unquote woke and understanding now, but like I can guarantee thirteen year old John was not keeping track of tough, strong you know, protagonists mm-hmm. women in cinema. I only in a lens of retrospective can go back and be like, Oh wait, I did like that movie. Oh wait, she was badass. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. But, like, you know, I'm actually interested in... This is the first time I'm going to call this out for our viewers. I actually listened to some of the ladies that uh, listen in to who they think is the toughest. Yeah. Because, again, we're guys. We come from a different, completely re- uh, perspective on this. So, you know, I'd love to hear from you, ladies. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've 
if you want to go by Twitter as an indicator, you're probably going to definitely see Wonder Woman on there because sure, yeah. I I don't necessarily agree per se, but I I wouldn't argue that she's one of the toughest. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. All right. So yeah, feel free to leave your comments in the, the section below. Uh, we will definitely have uh, more top tens in the future. This this has actually become one of the the, the, uh, the things I do that I actually really look forward to. Because <laughs> I do too. Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. All right, so uh, that's uh, it for now. Uh, this is uh, Mackenzie Lambert signing off and John Cleveland. Bye. All right, before we close out, there's uh, two more things I want to address. Next year, uh, some of the episodes uh, I, I definitely want to tackle. I want to take a look at the Halloween franchise. And that unfortunately includes the Rob Zombie films, but it also includes the 2018 reboot. Uh, I also have a box set of Gorefest films that I actually bought for a dollar at the Lockport Library. So uh, for all those people who collect DVDs, always check libraries. They, they always have some hidden gems there. Uh, and in this box set, there's only one movie I covered previously, and that was Al Adamson's Blood of Dracula's Castle. But all the other movies are going to be new for the podcast. And one of them features Cameron Mitchell. So good times. Uh, I also want to look at uh, the Abbott and Costello films where they meet the monsters. Uh, I want to finish Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill this year. Uh, I want to dedicate an episode to Fallout Cinema, the movies that inspired the games throughout the series. And lastly, I definitely want to do the Puppet Master series. And so the Puppet Master series, that could be a, a good stretch of four or five episodes. So that, that'll be a, a nice, long, uh, extensive uh, mini-series of sorts. All right, now we have uh, the, a giveaway from Paramount Pictures. Bruce Willis stars in the action-packed sci-fi thriller Breach. Buy or rent it on digital today. Fleeing Earth after a deadly plague, a spaceship transporting the remaining survivors faces the new threat. A shape-shifting alien force intent on slaughtering what is left of humanity. Buy or rent Breach and watch it tonight. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. I have five digital copies to give away. Just like uh, the post on Facebook or Twitter to be entered into the contest... Want to double your chances? Tell me your favorite Bruce Willis performance. Maybe it's Die Hard. Maybe The Sixth Sense or Unbreakable for M. Night Shyamalan. Or or maybe you're a Hudson Hawk fan. For me, it's Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, Go ahead and uh, follow those directions, and I will announce the winners on New Year's Eve, December 31st. And that wraps up this episode from Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. After this episode, I'll be taking a hiatus until mid-January. I'll be back on January 15th with a new episode, The Films of William Girdler. We're talking Grizzly, Day of the Animals, Asylum of Satan, and Project Kill. If you like this content and would like to see the program grow, a one-time donation via PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds, and Parlor. I have my BitChute channel as well. For the last couple of weeks, I've been streaming on Twitch. All of that in the description box below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Mac and the Movies. Take care, stay safe, and have a Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm.